All right, well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, you can also follow along in the Bible app. If you have the Bible app, uh, download it on your phone. If you don't, you can download it. It kind of looks like this. I got a little graphic here. Um, there's a little icon. You can open that up. If you click on the more button, then click on events. This is really, it's all convoluted, but you click on events and you click on Crossroads Church. It's got all the notes, all our scripture passages. You can follow along each week uh, with that. But either way, if you've got your Bible, open it up to Galatians chapter two. We are in week five of our study of this book. Uh, and while a number of topics and themes are covered in it, the reason for this letter is really a call to the Galatians to keep the main thing, the main thing. So what's the main thing? You can answer. What's the main thing? Jesus. Jesus yeah. Specifically, we're, there's, the earlier group, group did this as well. They're all kind of right answers, but the main thing is the gospel. That's what we're talking about in the book of Galatians. And what is the gospel? The idea that Jesus, not the idea, the fact that Jesus died for our sins and this gift of grace. It's grace. It's a gift. It's not something that we've earned. It's something we've been given, right? This gift of grace that brings us salvation, it's a salvation from future judgment. It's a salvation from a life lived for all the wrong reasons. Um, that salvation, it's a salvation that comes through faith in Jesus, period. That's the end. That's the whole thing, faith in Jesus. It seems simple enough. And I think that this is what most Christians would say that they believe. But as we've noted from the beginning of our study in this book the Galatians have started to pull away from that gospel. Paul writes, I'm astonished that you are turning so quickly, or pardon me, that you are quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What was that different gospel? Well, simply put, it's that salvation comes from faith in Jesus and being circumcised and following certain Jewish customs. So not faith in Christ alone, faith in Jesus plus, plus, plus. Faith plus works, faith plus the law. And the crazy thing is that the law was actually always about faith, like from the beginning. It was a way for us to understand sin and its effects. It was a guide to help us flourish and experience life the way that God intended it to be lived. It was a ruler against which we could measure our actions, our thoughts, our hearts, and see our shortcomings and our guilt and our need for a savior. And Jesus came along and fulfilled that law. He lived it perfectly. And then in his perfection, in his innocence, he took our guilt, our shortcomings, our sin, and faced their consequences dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and then saying to his people and all who would follow, including us, believe in me, have faith in me, and you will be saved. That's it. Now that can be said probably in some more famous words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him and has been circumcised and doesn't eat pork and doesn't have questions about the doctrine of election and is baptized by immersion and on and on. No, no, it's right there on the screen. Whoever, what, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the end of the sentence. In fulfilling the law, Jesus sets us free from the striving, from the guilt that comes from never measuring up. 
This is the gospel. And this is the gospel from which the church in Galatia has so quickly turned. Now, before we judge Galatia, because it's easy to do. It's my sincere hope that the only judgment that happens today is judging of our own hearts and not like the heaping of judgment onto ourselves, but the careful discerning of our own proclivity toward gospel drift. When looking at the Galatians, we need to remember that this is the early church, right? This is the early, this is the beginning of the church. A church that was born out of Judaism, an existing, well-established religion with long and tightly held customs and traditions that were put in place to set them apart from the rest of the world. These people would have been rabbis, disciples, Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, zealots, all coming to a saving faith in Jesus and then beginning the lifelong process of sanctification. Right? So justification. You're going to hear that word today. Justified justification is just another word for salvation, for being saved. We are justified when we believe in Jesus. Then the process of sanctification begins, the process of becoming more like Jesus. And that process is not immediate. But not always. I mean, we do hear stories of radical transformation. Many of us have lived lives of slow and meandering conformity to Jesus. Last week, Sam shared the story of his buddy who came to faith and would pray profanity-laced prayers because it's just what he knew, right? And what the early Jewish Christians knew was the law, customs, traditions, And the Greeks, these Gentiles who were coming to faith, they wanted to know how do we live lives obedient to Jesus. So they came together as a church to study the scriptures. What scriptures are they studying? The law, right? The Torah, the prophets. And who better to help them understand these scriptures than those who had studied them their entire lives? Now the hard thing happens when these people, these humans, these sinners who have been in a religion for so long and have preconceived ideas and notions about how you're supposed to live their lives, try to understand things in light of the gospel. They're learning too. They're asking the Holy Spirit to renew their minds. And if you're anything like me, you know that that's not an easy task. So Paul has taken the gospel, this message of faith in Jesus, to those outside the Jewish faith, to the Gentiles of Greece, and many have responded with joy and enthusiasm, and people are getting saved. You know, a church is planted, a network of churches, really. They're planted, it's growing. And then as Sam walked us last week through the start of Galatians chapter 2, Paul takes a trip up to Jerusalem, to the mothership, right, to the, to the church in Jerusalem, In verse 2, we read, I, Paul, went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So he went up there to confirm that the gospel, that this message that he should be preaching was in fact faith in Jesus. End of sentence. No requirement of adherence to the Jewish law for salvation. This was much to the displeasure of the false brothers that we read about last week. But 
regardless of their intervention, the church in Jerusalem was in agreement with Paul. They had different callings and philosophies of ministry, but their understanding of the gospel was the same. The gospel was faith in Jesus, period. So since they agreed the problem was solved and everybody lived happily ever after, no. Until Jesus comes back to make things as they're supposed to be, they're not going to be that way. It certainly wasn't the case in Galatia. Because then we get to our passage today. And let's just, let's, let's read that now. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. But, and that's never a good start. But when Cephas, and that's Peter. Sometimes he's Peter, sometimes he's Cephas, sometimes he's Simon. When Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, also Saul sometimes, but I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So, pardon me, and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So there's no real consensus as to the timing of this letter to the Galatians. And there's not as much, there's even less consensus about when this part of the passage actually took place in relation to the passage that we read last week. All we know is that in verse 9, Peter is on board with faith in Jesus alone. And by verse 11, he's not. When Cephas came to Antioch, verse 11 says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter has to be one of my favorite Bible characters. He's the one that I feel like I can relate with the most. Um, Just a couple of highlights from his life. You probably know these. In Matthew 14, the disciples are in a boat. There's a stone blowing. They think they're going to drown, and they see Jesus walking towards them on the water. You know this, but stick with me. Peter says, Jesus, if that's really you, call to me and I will walk out onto the water with you. And Jesus says, all right, come on. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he walks to Jesus. And what happens? He looks and realizes he's walking on water and he's not in the boat with his friends and he freaks out and he starts to drown. (laughs) Jesus comes to the rescue, pulls him back into the boat. They have a teaching moment. It's the kind of thing that I would do. In Matthew 26, after the Last Supper, Jesus is walking with the disciples and he tells them that they are all going to desert him. Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And most of us in here know how that played out, right? The disciples were scattered. Peter was asked if he was one of the disciples. He says, no, three times. 
He swore emphatically that he was not one of them. What happened to even if I must die? Peter's got a fear issue. Peter's a people pleaser. And then we fast forward to now when Paul is in Jerusalem, he meets with Peter, James, and John. They're the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. Faith in Jesus, they say. That's the deal, right? Yes. Peter, yes. Right? Okay, so Titus, my Gentile missionary friend over here, he doesn't have to get circumcised, right? Peter, totally on board. Then Peter comes to Antioch. He meets Gentile brothers who have faith in Jesus. That's the one thing, right? We're still good. He eats with them. They don't wash their hands. That's okay. They're not circumcised. He's fine with that. They're eating pork, finally. But when they, these certain men from James, came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And it's for this reason that Paul opposes Peter to his face, saying that he stands condemned. Now, on the surface, and in our day, not eating with somebody might not seem like a big deal. It's just a meal, right? They still go to church together. They read the same scriptures. They sing the same songs. This is a way bigger deal back then. In order to keep clean, which was what so much of the traditions were about in, in Judaism, the Jews were keeping themselves separate from the Gentiles, especially when it came to meals. German theologian J. Jeremiah wrote this. In Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. So to eat with Gentiles meant that you believed that they shared in the blessing of grace from God through faith in Jesus Christ, which Peter did. But these men from James, who weren't actually sent from James, right? James was on board with this. These are just influential high rollers in the church who are like, we're going to go throw our weight around and say, we're from James. You need to hold to tradition. These guys could not humble themselves and see that they were all part of the body of Christ. All equal. All sharing the same blessing. All clean And it was based on the fact, this frustration that they had was based on the fact that these Gentiles weren't Jews. Or at least they weren't acting like Jews. So the circumcision party, terrible name, they're refusing to eat with the Gentile Christians and they're pressuring Peter to do the same. Guys, it's racist. It's classist. At the base level. It's unacceptable. It's also a denial of the gospel or a declaration, as Paul puts it, of a different gospel. Back in chapter one, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed This is what Peter and these certain men from James were guilty of. They may not have said it out loud, but they made it abundantly clear with their actions that the gospel was actually Jesus plus, plus, plus. They got Peter to go along with them. 
And what they were doing did not go unnoticed. They were seen by the others who then gave into the pressure to do the same. Chapter two, verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. The rest of the Jews. Now it's possible that this is just Paul being typical Paul and being hyperbolic around these things. He's known for a bit of dramatic license, but regardless of the number, some people in the church a church that was founded on faith in Jesus alone began to pull away from the others. Even Barnabas, we read. Barnabas and Paul were tight, right? They were on the same mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Barnabas brought Paul and Titus to Jerusalem so that they could all make sure they were on the same page with regard to the gospel. This pulling away from the table was a big deal. It caused division. It was painful. It was racist and classist. And it took Jesus off the cross and just made him another rabbi with a different idea as to how to apply scripture. This is no small thing. I was listening to a sermon on this passage from Tim Keller this week. And many of you know, he passed away last week uh, after a battle with cancer. Um, I've long appreciated his insight into scripture and the application to culture and life, and he's now sitting with Jesus being corrected on all his wrong theology. (laughs) But in this sermon, he cited a Presbyterian theologian who summarized the issue at hand along these lines. He said that Paul says, you need to believe in Jesus and then you're saved. And the outworking, the result, the effect of that salvation is obedience. The others, these certain men from James, say believe in Jesus, do your best to uphold the law, And then you'll be saved, right? So the formula, Paul's formula, believe, saved, obey. The others, believe, obey, and be saved. It's not a small distinction. This isn't a difference between two denominations. This theologian who wrote this said, it's a difference between two religions. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They weren't deserting Jesus and turning to other gods, to idol worship, to sexual immorality, to thievery, murder, deceit, malice. They were saying you had to wash your hands before you ate. I'm minimizing it to make a point, but... That's the deal. Anything that we add to the gospel, saying that you have to do something in addition to having faith in Jesus, whether you do that in word or deed, that's not Christianity. That's something else-ity. It's a false religion. And Crossridge, believe it or not, and hold on to your hats, Crossridge, we do not hold a monopoly on Christianity. Our way, it's truth, our way is not the only way. Jesus is the only way. Our way is not the only way. And to say or suggest that again in word or deed is an offense that condemns us. Now, I want to be very careful here. I don't want to be flippant or cavalier with this. We guard our theology here. We read the Bible in a certain way. We govern our church a specific way. We have a statement of faith that has specific and distinct theological distinctions. I didn't have that written down twice in here. I got tongue-tied, but... We do this because we want to be careful. We want to be discerning. We want to follow Jesus rightly. We do. 
And there are certain things that we should not do as a church. There are certain things that we should not do as followers of Jesus. There are behaviors and theologies and ideologies and practices that are detrimental to the life of a Christian. There are things that can lead us away from Jesus. There are things that damage our relationship with Jesus and with each other. As pastors and elders here, we believe that there are things that are dangerous and harmful to those in our care, to the community that we're planted in, to the city, to the country, to the world. And we are going to hold those things up in front of you. We will admonish you. We will call you to holiness. We will argue over these things in our elders' meetings. And one day, and I pray that it's never, but one day, the people of Crossridge may come head to head on an important issue and they might have to part ways. But as soon as we say in order to be saved, in order to call yourself a Christian or even a Christian on the same level as me, I mean, that just sounds just ridiculous. That you have to believe in Jesus and... We're off base, and just like Peter, we stand condemned. Verse 14, but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul sees all that's going on and jumps on it immediately. He nips it in the bud, and he does so publicly. He doesn't pull Peter and some of the guys aside and be like, hey, guys. You know that thing that you did? It's a little... No, he calls him out publicly before them all, it says. And he doesn't do this to be a jerk or to like parade and be a shock jock. This was a very public thing that happened. The church had been enjoying table fellowship with everyone and then it just stopped. Everyone knew. So everyone needs to know how big a deal this is. It's not just about a meal. This is about the gospel which is our whole reason for being together. And in this moment, he singles out Peter and says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? So poor Peter, right? I mean, he should have known better. He did know better. He had a responsibility to champion the gospel, to shepherd the flock. But a sinner saved by grace is still a sinner, right? They're prone to make some mistakes, I also say poor Peter because I already said I identify with him. You might be surprised to hear this, but I really care what people think about me. It's a constant struggle. I know I'm loved by God. I know I'm saved by grace through faith in his son. But if someone thinks I'm a little too conservative, someone thinks I'm a little too liberal. I work really hard at including big enough words in my sermon so you know I have a degree but not too many so that I'm not relatable to the everyman, you know? I was deciding whether or not I was going to say this because some friends of my parents are here this morning, but I'm turning 48 next month and I still try to hide my tattoos from my parents. (laughs) I'm a people pleaser. I'm working on it. And as Sam reminded us last week, Jesus, who began a good work in me, is going to bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, but not a second sooner. Right? So don't rush me. He's still working on me. But Peter is a people pleaser. It's been a thorn in his side for ages. And as Paul is saying, look, man, now is the time to deal with this right now. 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force others to do that? One of Paul's beefs with Peter is the fact that Peter did not feel obligated to live under the law the way that he used to. And we know this because of a pivotal moment that took place in Acts chapter 10 with regard to the evangelism of the entire world. Peter and the other apostles were they're preaching the gospel to their fellow Jews all over Israel. Peter's spending some time alone. He's seeking the Lord in prayer when he has a vision in which he saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Peter then has an interaction with a centurion named Cornelius in which he comes to understand that this vision that he had was actually not just about food. It was about people. And not that Peter should rise, kill, and eat people, but what God has made clean do not call common. Peter's mind is blown, right? Keeping separate from the Gentiles was a practice to stop Jews from taking on the habits and religions and idols and gods of other nations, to keep their hearts, or in our words, their faith fixed on the one true God. And now, because of Jesus' work on the cross, that is for everybody, all people. All people hear the good news. And in Galatia, they were repenting and turning to Jesus. And God does not call these people common. He does not call them unclean. And neither should Peter. So he shares this with the Gentiles of Caesarea. Peter opens his mouth and says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. No partiality. He shares the gospel and something amazing happens. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit that was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. An amazing thing. Faith in Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit, even to the Gentiles. And note that the baptism part comes after that. That's not part of the equation. Baptism, not part of salvation. Comes after. Peter knew better than to separate himself from the Gentile believers. Timothy George said, Peter had every reason to resist the pressure to compromise his convictions in the face of pressure. He had been in the intimate circle of Jesus' closest disciples. He was a primary witness to the resurrection. He had witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He had even been used by God as the instrument of evangelistic breakthrough to the Gentiles. Yet, in a moment of crisis, he failed. And by the force of his example, he led many others astray as well. And Paul takes him to task on it publicly that wouldn't have been fun we read in hebrews for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it 
And the good news is that it would seem that this would have been true in Peter's life. This event did not disqualify him from ministry. If anything, it probably propelled him to a more faithful and fruitful ministry without having to worry about the approval of man. It's a good thing. So with the time we have left, we're going to pull out three points from our last two verses. I hear cheering from the note takers. We're going to look at three truths to keep us in step with the gospel. You ready to write these down? Get ready. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The first truth is that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You might see where we're going with this. Paul is saying, hey, we're Jews. We're keepers of the law. And even we know this. And it might be helpful when we read this verse to throw up some air quotes around the Gentile sinners bit. If you took that to be how Paul actually felt, that's a whole other layer of like hypocrisy and stuff. That's not what he's saying. He's putting some tongue in cheek on that. We, the Jews, the ones who have been entrusted with the law, the ones called by God as his holy people, the hands and feet of God on earth, even we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This point, this first point, is for those of you who, like me, have spent most of your life, and maybe even nine months before you were born, in church. You know this, right? You've been taught this. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus. A person is not justified by checking off boxes. They're not. Church attendance, abstinence, tithing, going on a missions trip, teaching Sunday school, making sure you go to the right denomination church, making sure you have the right list of canceled authors. You claim salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, then live it. Stop treating others like they're less than you because they don't live up to your standards. They're your standards. They're not God's. That's right. The second truth that we find is partway into verse 16. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Point number two, we are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. This one's different. This one is for the new Christian, okay? Somebody who's not been a believer for very long. Let me again remind you of what Paul said in Galatians 1. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. To the new believer, don't let some silly Christian pull you into legalism. Faith in Jesus alone. That's salvation. Run from legalism. Don't let it happen. If Lee comes back from his sabbatical and starts teaching faith in Jesus plus plus, get out of here. 
right? I really don't anticipate that happening. I, I have confidence in the, the guy that's my friend. But just in case, it's so important. We will read later in Galatians chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't do it. Faith in Jesus alone. That faith causes us to behave certain ways. But the behavior is not the means of the faith and the salvation that comes through it. Please run from legalism. Lastly, the end of verse 16, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So point three, by works of the law, no one will be justified. This one is for the person that Christians so lovingly and thoughtfully call the non-Christian. You might be of the mind that Christianity is about rules, about I've already said abstinence or about just living perfectly about being better than others. And sadly, that's what it's been made to be by so many Christians like certain men from James. Sam said last week, and I've alluded to as well, there are certainly boundaries suggested in scripture, guidelines that are not there to kill joy, but to nurture true human flourishing. And the way that Christians choose to live comes out of a desire to experience life the way it was designed by its creator. And that creator is Jesus And having faith in him, trusting him, believing what he says is true is what it means to be a Christian. You cannot live a certain way and earn salvation. It's not about penance and good deeds. Don't let that distract you from the one who loves you and gave his life for you so that you could live fully and free. Have faith in Jesus and he will help you. His spirit will help you figure the rest of it out. You don't need a list. In Luke 23, we read that Jesus was crucified among or along with two criminals. One of them hurled insults and curses at Jesus. The other rebuked him and said, hey man, we're guilty. This guy's obviously innocent like why are we don't don't yell at him and then he turns to jesus and he said hey remember me when you come into your kingdom and what did jesus say to him okay when you get off the cross you're going to go to this church and you're going to go through their welcome to jesus class and then you're going to go to their baptism explored class and then you're get no he said today you will be with me in paradise. He's going to die today. Where's the formula in that? What does that do? This is like the legalist's nightmare verse. They don't know what to do with it. That can't be true. It's obviously a made-up story. Scottish preacher Alistair Begg wonders what it must have been like when that thief arrived in heaven. He walks up to the angel at the gates because that's obviously what it's going to be like, right? Like there's a gate and it's probably Peter, right? So he's there. What are you doing here? I don't know. 
What do you mean you don't know? He goes, okay, uh, I got to go get my supervisor. So then he goes and gets other supervisor, Angel, who shows up. And he says, okay, just a few questions. First off, uh, where do you stand on a literal six-day creation? <laughs> He's like, what? I don't, I don't even understand those words. Okay, uh, what about the doctrine of election? And the guy just stares. And the angel looks at him and says, well, on what basis are you here? And he looks at him and he goes, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. Like, that probably didn't happen <laughs> like that, but, but that's what happened to that guy. Explain to me how what he listens to on the radio matters. What book he read this week. What sermon he read that was by a canceled pastor because he was too woke. That's ridiculous. We're not saved by anything that we can do, so why do we try? Why? Again, guys, this, I'm not being silly and flippant. There are boundaries that God has given us and we want to live within them. But we can't force that on somebody and say that you're not like me unless you do this. Because that's a lie from the pit of hell. And Jesus wants something more for us. And he wants his church to love each other. So that's it. Let's pray. God, I don't know. I mean, I know I needed to hear this. I don't know who else did. All I'm confident in is that your word is alive. And you have told us that when you send it out, it always does what you wanted it to do. And so we pray in this situation that that's what it would be, that you would continue calling us out of our striving to be good enough for you. That you would call us out of our holding others down so that we could love you, be your church, and experience the full life that you've promised. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.